0: everyone talks about these silos between sales and marketing but actually there's a huge silo between the commercial side of the business and product at least that's been my experience within startups of marketing don't touch anything once and become a customer after that it's not your responsibility leave it alone and i think that's broken we have this saying where it's called the nmfp not my fucking problem so you have marketing gets their leads in they hit their target and they hand them to sales and sales go these leads are crap and we say that's not my fucking problem and then sales close these customers. And when it, it's, then they pass them law to CS and CS say these are bad fits on my fucking problem. It reinforces these silos. And as a vice president of growth, I want to break down these silos and I want to focus on how we can all collaborate together, putting the customer at the center to grow the business, to increase revenue. And that is so much more than acquisition, which is where traditionally marketing has always sat. Welcome
1: to Product with Banash. I'm Axel, and in this show, I talk to product leaders and experienced operators across Europe and beyond. Together, we'll learn about their craft, how they build successful products, and unpack the frameworks and secrets they've used in delivering growth for their businesses. Today I'm super excited to welcome Jennifer Montague, who is currently Vice President of Growth at Onomondo, an Internet of Things company based in Copenhagen, Denmark. She oversees a growth team of twelve people, focusing on sustainable and scalable growth across both the buyer and customer journeys. Previously, Jennifer was the director of marketing at Dixa, a hyper-growth scale-up, where she oversaw a global team of eight across all marketing initiatives. Hi, Jen. How are you doing?
0: Hi, Axel. I'm great. Thanks for having me.
1: My pleasure. It's great having you here. Before we dive into some of today's topics, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and what you've been up to so far?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'll try to do the short version. But actually, I have a corporate background where I used to work actually at FIFA in Switzerland, where I was in a customer success role. And so I ended up relocating from Switzerland to Copenhagen, where I dipped my toe into the startup life and haven't looked back since. I got my first full, I will say in air quotes, marketing job after working particularly in client services and communications, where I did a lot of the digital ads, performance marketing and things like that. Worked my way up the marketing ladder through two different startups, five funding rounds, three mergers and acquisitions. So been a pretty intense few years. And as you mentioned, I was recently, most recently at Dixeth, where I was the director of marketing and actually was lucky enough to be pregnant for 14 months during the pandemic. I guess that lucky isn't the right word, but here in Scandinavia, I had 14 months of paid leave and it was a wonderful opportunity for me to really think about what was broken in marketing. And while I do enjoy marketing, it just felt that it was a bandaid on bigger cracks It's something had to change. And so I spent my maternity leave aside from nursing swollen feet and sleeping a lot, trying to figure out what was broken. And that's where I started to get into growth. I started my old podcast, Marketing Corner, where we started talking about other things that are broken within marketing and exploring growth a little bit more. Maybe we should revisit the name, but we already have a logo, so we can't. And actually, Anamondo came into my life during my maternity leave. And that's where I've spent the last 10 months making my growth vision a reality. So that's where I am now. It's interesting
1: you talk about product growth and marketing. I think this is definitely space that's getting more and more attention as like the craft of product management evolves. I'm curious to hear about how you see your role position relative to a product management organization. How does that work?
0: I think that's a really wonderful question. And I think that's one of the reasons I'm starting to dive more into product. I believe that everyone talks about these silos between sales and marketing, but actually there's a huge silo between the commercial side of the business and product. At least that's been my experience within startups of marketing. Don't touch anything once and become a customer. After that, it's not your responsibility. Leave it alone. And I think that's broken. That's one of the main things I've seen that's broken with marketing of I apologize in advance for swearing, but we have this saying where it's called the NMFP, not my fucking problem. So you have marketing gets their leads in, they hit their target and they hand them to sales and sales go, these leads are crap. And we say, that's not my fucking problem. And then sales close these customers. And when it, it's, then they pass the ball to CS, us and CS say, these are bad fits, not my fucking problem. And it, it creates these silos, it reinforces these silos. And so I see myself as a growth manager, as someone, as a vice president of growth. Where I want to break down these silos and I want to focus on how we can all collaborate together, putting the customer at the center to grow the business, to increase revenue. And that is so much more than acquisition, which is where traditionally marketing has always sat in the acquisition part of the funnel. Once they become a customer, NMFP, product, keep them, CS, keep them happy, product, build whatever they want, fix those bugs, and then, you know, leave us alone. And product probably says the same thing, marketing. Don't involve yourself in our stuff, just stick to the website. I think we need to break down those barriers. And that's one of the reasons I'm diving headfirst into getting to understand product better through people like yourself, through Leah Torin in Product T, through Elena Verna, and a lot of the content out there about how marketing and product team work together better.
1: How have you been doing this, right? What mm-hmm. does this growth role actually look like from a very concrete perspective?
0: I will say there's two versions. There's what we're doing now and there's what I'd like to get to eventually. I'll start with what I'm doing now, which is I have a very large team of 12 people, as you mentioned, where 75% of my team focus on what I would refer to as indirect MRR. We have 25% who focus purely on acquisition, demand generation, lead capture, all of the kind of Google ads and the usual marketing suspects that you see. But then 75% of my team were actually focused on activation, retention, and expansion, uh, which is something that traditional marketing teams don't do. So I have, within activation, we do getting started videos. We're looking at the activation process and how do we improve new feature adoption? How do we improve education? How do we improve the help center so people can help themselves? And how do we reduce pressure on CS and how do we help customers empower themselves? And ultimately, how do we, so we want to reduce that churn, obviously, that is a revenue play in itself. And we also want to expand upon the customer. And in order to do that, we need product on board. We need new things for them to buy, right? We need new features and tiering and things like that to help with this expansion play. So my team focus across both what I call the buyer, I don't call it, (laughs) I want to cut that, what is called the buyer journey and the customer journey. So not just ac- activation, acquisition, but also how they use the product, how much success they get out of the product, what they tell other people about the product, and how we get them more and more kind of loyal and turn them into advocates. So,
1: The way you look at this is, I was, it sounds like most of your experience is B2B SaaS, right? Correct. Like, how do you see this operate if you are not a B2C SaaS company? Like, that had, did you have to think about this or... You just found out there's a playbook to do this for B2B SaaS companies.
0: I think the reason that I see that this is super important is can't doing things the same way. And the B2B process is longer than B2C. There's more stakeholders involved. There's a bigger price tag. Usually they aren't necessarily repeat customers. So, you know, in a B2C space, you just want, okay, you can have repeat customers, but they're buying different products with B2B. It's one product that you keep them. You get them to hopefully upgrade and things like that. So it's a different nurture flow. It's a different commitment. If you buy a pair of shoes and they turn out to not be what you want, you just don't buy those shoes again. When we're talking about $20,000, $50,000 software that changes your entire workflow in, or chart, that is a much bigger commitment from the company side. And so they take a lot longer to make that decision and they need a lot more proof. And that's, I think, one of the exciting things of B2B, but also the very first shaping parts of B2B is the different stakeholders, the different touch points, and then also the long sales cycle. So it takes us a lot longer to figure out what works than, say, if you were doing a B2C or fast-moving consumer codes. I hope that that answered the question.
1: No, it does. Thank you. One of the things that kind of resonates, you talked a little bit earlier about the territorial aspects that sometimes seep into the work between marketing, sales, product. I, for one, have experienced a lot of the Product slash sales tensions. So you have salespeople incentivized to get deals signed, so they focus on that. And to be fair, I've worked with some amazing sales execs in my time, and they're just really good at their job, but sometimes purely incentivizing people on signing up new deals creates like these behaviors that are detrimental to the whole organization and product, right? One of the questions I have is. These collaborations and ways of working in most companies I've seen are not as smooth as you would want them to be. How do you help people work in this new way, right? Where growth marketing is more integrated into what product does and how are we maybe consciously or unconsciously blurring the lines between these like two different departments in the organization and fostering this collaboration?
0: I think that's a wonderful question and I would be lying if I said we've cracked it. And so that actually leads me to the second part of, I guess, my previous answer of what would I like to be doing? And I think the way we could do this is to bring products, um, CS, RevOps, growth and sales more into the folds within the different stages of that journey. So one of the things that I'm looking to do, for example, is setting up an acquisition workforce where you have products sitting there saying, okay. Now, when they because we're looking at our sets of data saying this is what is driving conversion. So we need to do more of this. That doesn't tend to in, get too involved in product necessarily, unless you're talking a free trial. But if we can bring product a little bit more into our world and we can get ourselves a little bit more into their worlds where we're looking at user data. So one of the things that we do, for example, at Onabundo is we look at Weekspanel and we see what features are people using. This is not something that usually marketing teams would do, right? We look at our Google ads and we look at our Link to LinkedIn ad platforms and figure out what, what is getting people to sign and click that button. But how do we actually pull product more into the earlier parts of the funnel and how do we get a little bit further deeper into the, the customer journey? So setting up a task force, for example, focus on acquisition, activation, retention, and expansion that has a representative from the marketing team, from the sales team, from CS, from product, and ideally from RevOps or some kind of data source, a, a one source of truth, which I think is also very important to have all in the same room together saying, how do we get more people to buy this? How do we get more people to use it faster? How do we get more people to stay? How do we get more people to upsell? And pulling together to accomplish these goals as opposed to just focus purely on net new MR, which is what a lot of businesses are doing right now. Because that doesn't really resonate with product people from my experience.
1: And one of the things I'm curious to understand is as you are setting this like new ways of working across these different organizations, do these collaboration moments happen in specific rituals and events? Or some of the things that I've seen is in some organizations, you'll have product marketing managers or product growth people that belong to the marketing organization in terms of reporting line, but they will actually sit within a specific product team or a product squad, right? Like how are you setting this up from an organizational perspective?
0: So doing it somewhat like that, but creating growth pods. So this would be the growth team driving this purely because we're growth and we have a focus on the full journey, whereas perhaps product have their focus, sales have their focus. We are the ones who sit across the whole organization looking at how we can drive growth across all different aspects of the customer and buyer journey. So one of the things I'm proposing would be a growth pod focus on acquisition that would have products and engineering within that. And that would be the product marketing person. So right now, product marketing sits within growth but they obviously work very closely in the product and have regular meetings. But the focus tends to be more on how do we communicate what you guys are building as opposed to what's working, what's out in the marketplace, what is our key differentiators, what are customers loving about what we do, how do we do more of that, what is it that we're not doing so great, how do we make that better and how do we look at ways of increasing revenue through keeping customers happy. I think the focus needs to be more on it sounds maybe a little bit of a hippie answer of all of us coming together to focus on increasing growth across the board, whether that is, of course, new customers, but also keeping the customers we have, getting them more successful on the platform and extending upon them through new use cases or new subscriptions, upselling new features. So I, in my world, I would pull that into the growth team as opposed to putting another thing on top of products plate yeah i'm
1: sure I'm sure people would love that.
0: That's that's not sure but. We shout out all the, all the help. People.
1: We need, yeah, we need all the help we can get. Right, mm-hmm. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go back to something you mentioned earlier. We talked a little bit about the fact that sometimes things get a little bit territorial between teams, mm-hmm. especially when you're in like enterprise sales territory. There's a lot of stakes. Like people are working through these very long and complex sales cycles to sometimes sell like a $10,000, $100,000 contract, right? And it's really important for the company because at the end of the day, that's what generates the revenue and pays for people's salaries and creates value for the entire organization. That bit I've seen replicated across many B2B SaaS companies. By that bit, this intensity around sales and how sometimes some of these sales representatives, how they will behave. So I've been in meetings where As a product person, I've sat there and seen salespeople commit on things that I knew would (laughs) never happen, for example, right? So things like that. So how I'm keen to go a little bit into detail here, right? Enterprise sales is not easy, right? Like I've not known anybody who would say otherwise. I'm curious to understand in that specific context, how do you... I see this almost like couples therapy, right? Between product and sales. (laughs) How do you make this work between product, marketing and growth? Like how does that relationship work?
0: Yeah, I think this is a really big problem, to be honest, is the enterprise thing. And I've seen so many times where we need to win this enterprise client. And I know a lot of times for product, it's throw your roadmap out the window and just build what these people want. And we, everything has to be winning this customer and how frustrating that is for you. On the flip side, in marketing, same exact thing happens to us. Stop everything you're doing. Stop all your campaigns. Stop. We need this kind of case study. We need this social proof. We need this documentation. We also are very close. Our experience in that enterprise thing is very close to what you guys are also experiencing. So I feel you. How we solve that, we're still trying to figure out how. To solve that because there is enterprise is hugely important. We can close four enterprise customers or 1,500 SMBs. I think our CS, everyone would much prefer to have four big customers than so many tiny ones from a CS point of view. And there's much more expansion opportunities. Having said that, product have a roadmap, product have stuff they have to do. We have our plans here. We plan our campaign months in advance. So if something comes up, it can be a bit difficult for us to just hard left Stuff this whole new project. Same with you. I think one of the things that would actually be a huge part of that is again breaking it into these growth pods, where we can see, okay, maybe it is a case of uh, I love my matrixes. I love the melting, building a matrix of here's what SMBs need, here's what enterprise needs. I've worked in companies where the product team everyone put everything all their eggs into one enterprise customer, and then the deal doesn't close, and then in the meantime customers churn because they hate you because you didn't fix those bugs, you didn't build the things you promised. Then those people go on social media and leave really bad reviews about you, which makes marketing's job harder. So it's not in anyone's interest to do that. I've worked in places where for big clients, they've actually built a product team and a CS team specifically for them within the contract. And I've seen that work rather well. One well, place I worked, they closed a very huge multinational company. And as part of that, they had their own product team, their own engineers and their own dedicated CST so that the core product team could focus on what they were doing and on their roadmap without the enterprise customer coming in and putting a stop to all the progress that's happening. But I think that also creates more silos. So I think what I would like in my ideal growth vision is to have an enterprise focus in these parts of these, this is the money we're leaving on the table if we do not build X, Y, Z. Are we okay with that?
1: Yeah, they are missed opportunities.
0: Exactly. And I think that's something that needs to be communicated in a better way. And that's not really happening right now. It's just product, you build stuff, so build this for me. And you guys are like, we're already building a lot. Here's the impact of that not happening. And I've had some of those conversations, at least from a marketing perspective. Of Sure, I can do that. But here is the impact of that decision. Which one do you want me to do, C-level? Do you want me to do X or do you want me to do Y? Here's the impact of both and making that call. It's frustrating, but I think it, it helps raise awareness of the impact of these decisions on the wider kind of business.
1: A lot of this I think goes back to how teams are incentivized and like yes. how they're being measured. And I'm not saying this in terms of like micromanagement or anything, but at the end of the day, the team, whether it's a marketing team or a product team or a growth team, whatever it's called, has to have a clear idea of whether they're moving in the right direction and like how much progress they've made in time, right? And goal setting is a big part of this, right? Like how are teams being tasked with goals? Are they outcome goals? Are they output goals? Like in the last couple of years, there's been this huge focus on outcomes. And one of the things I've seen around me is that a lot of people don't even know what that actually means. What are we talking about when we're talking about outcomes, right? I'm keen to hear a little bit about your view on this, like how are you creating a framework so that people are working collaboratively towards the same goals versus a world where each department have their own sets of objectives, which means that Mm -hmm. sometimes people are traveling in opposite directions.
0: That's a classic problem, right? And that's a big question that we get also within the marketing community. One of the things that we do at the moment, so I used to be in previous roles, right? My target was NQLs, marketing qualified leads. And I remember once saying to my CMO, okay, so I could, in theory, have all my friends and family sign up for a demo. I hit my target. They're not going to buy. It. <laughs> and it's, it's not, there's no point. So I think this is a really relevant question. So one of the things we first focused on at Automundo was net new MRR. And that was company wide because that can also be expansion. So that could be upselling customers. And part of that came a tiering play. That's We worked very closely with product. So originally we had two products. We had the beginner's package, and then we had the full blown enterprise, all bells and whistles. That's it. And if you were a little bit more than a beginner, you didn't want the beginner's package, but you didn't want to pay the enterprise price tag and all the bells and whistles. So we worked with product to pull out a lot of core features to make different packages with our product. And then that was an incentive for like our product team to understand that now we can focus on MRR. So how many people upgrade to these different products, they have a better understanding of the impact that they've had on making this a reality. Because before people just didn't join at all. Now they can start low. We lowered the barrier of entry to very low, lower than a lot of our competition. But then you can upscale and you can work your way up to the product. And that was how we pulled product a little bit more into our world of we need to find a way to upscale and to capture these people who are falling between the gaps. The next step that we have now, are our business model, we're an IoT company, so we look at connected devices using our technology. So rather than looking at just getting new customers, we're also looking at how do we make sure that as many customers as possible are deploying as many devices as possible. So we have a new goal of trying to get a target of how many devices are live around the world using our tech. And that, I think, is a little bit more attainable and accessible for product and engineering to say, Okay. Now we have 5 million devices around the globe using our technology. That's a better goal, I think, for them to have. And then they can look at new technology. Do we look at satellite? Do we look at Wi-Fi? Do we look at the IoT? And all of these other areas now that could play into this expansion is something that the product team can really sink their teeth into, which isn't just get us some new customers. So I think I agree with you 100%. You get what you incentivize. And if you incentivize for NQLs, you're going to get a bunch of NQLs. Everyone talks about incentivizing for MR, I monthly recurring revenue. I'm a big advocate for that. But my time now that I'm looking with product and engineering is that doesn't really translate for them. It's okay, great. You're going to get new customers. I still have to fix X amount of bugs and I have to build X amount of features. And how does that, how am I contributing? So by looking at incentivizing based on how much technology is being used, our tech is being used around the world, puts it in a different lens for the product and engineering team.
1: Yeah, you want the objectives and you want the goals to be relatable, right? If if people like can't relate to this measure of progress, then I think it's very hard for teams to even be motivated to actually deliver some of the work they're expected to. It would be strange for us to do this podcast and not talk about product-led growth, right? There's been a lot of talk around... PLG, that's what people call it. And I had, just like you, I had a great conversation with Leah Tharan recently and she was telling me about how there's like these two groups of people, I call them factions. <laughs> there's like <laughs> this first faction, which is really thinking about, there's nothing new about Product led growth. Like people did this 20 years ago, right? What's the big fuss about this new thing? It almost feels like we're rebranding and remarketing something we've known in software for quite a while. And this other faction, which is displaying a lot of like energy and enthusiasm around PLG and frameworks and ways of doing growth in this, uh, air quotes, new world. <laughs> I'm keen to get your point of view on this and dive a little bit into how are you applying product-led growth at, on a mondo? What does that look like?
0: Yeah, I definitely sit with the second faction, I think you can sit there and say, oh, we've done this before. And maybe in many ways you have, but the world has changed so much and it keeps changing. And so you have to keep adapting. And I think maybe one of the blockers for PLG in the past is people have said, I can't do that because my product is complex. That's one of the reasons that I think in the companies I've worked on, we can't do PLG because, but now actually people like Leah that you mentioned, Elena, and people like yourself, it's that second faction of, you can do this, but you just have to break it down. You, you can make your product less complex. You can do PLG. And I think that's where that kind of energy and that excitement is coming from. And I'm very excited. I don't know, you, people all listening can't see, but behind me is a whiteboard and I listen to stuff from Elena and I listen to stuff from you and I listen to stuff from Leah and I drew out a PLG play that I want to try with my team that we're going to try just after Easter. So it's helping us B2B people figure out how we can actually do this. Because before it was, that's only for Netflix. That's only for Slack. That's only for the big guys who can very easily whip up a PLG. No, it's for us too. And so one of the first ways that we are trying to do this is, as I mentioned earlier, we did tiering of our product. So we actually dipped our toes into the PLG and it was a disaster. So what we did was we put a price on our pricing page, which is (laughs) shock horror for a lot of B2B listeners out there. Believe it or not, we did that. My podcast, we did a whole thing about pricing and pricing page, so <laughs> we won't go into too much detail, but we had a price on our pricing page and for the cheaper option, and I'm going to say cheaper in air quotes, you were able to get that almost without talking to a human being. It got to the point where CS would have to send you a contract because we hadn't really figured out the Stripe integration just yet. But we thought, let's get something out the door before we over-engineer it. Integral team, we're very big on our MVPs. We, we do a very quick and dirty version. We did a HubSpot landing page with a HubSpot form because I want to know if it's going to work before I put a ton of resources into it. And we launched this kind of PLG MVP on a Friday, which is also bad practice to launch something on a Friday. I'm <laughs> glad that. <laughs>
1: You're experimenting, so.
0: We're experimenting and we just wanted to get it out the door, basically. And uh, we looked on Monday and our conversions are down and we're like, we'll And then our conversions are down more on the Tuesday and by the Wednesday, we actually turned it off. So we only let it run for about four or five days before we said, this isn't working. And we turned it off, we removed our pricing and our conversions leveled out again. And that's where we said, look, there's something wrong here. We need to do we need to do better at explaining what we do. We have to do better at explaining the value we're bringing to customers. We have to be competitive in the market because that's the other thing. If you're shopping, you're not going to sit there and read all about what our product can do. You look at the price and go, I need SIM cards, right? That's what most of our customers, I need SIM cards. And you're going to charge me 500 bucks a month for a SIM card where I can get one for two bucks over here. Goodbye. And that's what people were doing, at least in the half offices. So that's where we revisited the tiering. We went to product. We went, to, went through our CTO. We did a lot of, what could this look like? We talked to our investors. We got external product people to give us some advice. And we worked with product and we did our extension, excuse me, our tiering. And that provides us with a very low barrier to entry. And this is where we're trying PLG V2. And that is super low barrier to connect to access our product, get the SIM cards that you want at the best price there is out there. And then once we have you, then we can work with you on, hey, do you want to try this new feature? Do you want to try this new feature? And so the PLG that we've done now is you can get that connectivity without speaking to a human being. But if you want to do more, then you have to speak to a human who can talk you through the process. So we're getting there. We're getting closer and closer. The next step that I would like is a free trial, a reverse trial, as Elena would call it, right? Because it's, yep. you want to give everyone all the bells and whistles for a limited time, get them to see the benefit of the product, and then stop those features and say, if you want them, pony up. <laughs> <laughs> they realize,
1: they, they've got FOMO. They realize how much they need this stuff. And then exactly. uh, you hope, you're hoping for this to drive them to, to convert.
0: Exactly. Exactly. And that's PLG, right? Let the product do the selling itself. The problem that we did have is we have a very complex platform. And if you don't know, and we do things very differently, this isn't a sales pitch, but we do things differently. So if you come in without, with your assumed knowledge, you're not going to get value out of the product and you're going to go, these guys suck. So what we have to do is we have to build it from the consumer's perspective, as opposed to trying to convert them to our way of thinking, our terminologies. Oh, here's, we have all our internal words, right? That mean nothing to the consumer. So we have to revisit that. We have to make a free trial that, speaks to people's experiences and and understanding of the product, and then within that product, convert them into our way of thinking. Thank you.
1: I guess one of the things you just mentioned that resonates a lot is a lot of B2B enterprise companies will say, we can't do this BLG thing because our product is too complex. Or uh, some companies, especially companies operating sometimes in the deep tech space or some of these more kind of like technical, technically complex areas. We'll say, we cannot do this because, yeah, technical product, too complex. It's really interesting to see the steps you're taking in a, a, a very technical company, right? Like Onemundo mm-hmm. builds this, how should I call it? Like a non-physical SIM technology for, for devices out there in the IoT space. It's interesting to see that you're actually managing to gradually implement something like PLG in a company like this. Mm -hmm. One of the challenges I see is a lot of people find this quite abstract to understand from a mindset or framework level, what could that look like in a company like ours? If you were to break this down for, let's say, another marketing person in another more technical company, still B2B enterprise, what would you tell them? What steps would they take to Mm -hmm. think about how they can bring this in?
0: I think first and foremost, and maybe this is again a little hippie answer, but you have to figure out what are you trying to achieve? Right. And so for Anamondo, we want to try to, we want as many people experiencing and transforming their businesses using IOT as possible. Okay. Cool. If that's what you really want to do, then what are the barriers stopping people from doing this? And for us, we saw plastic, plastic and waiting for a sim and there's a chip shortage. And hey, I need 10,000 sims and I have to put one in my device by hand. There's a lot of barriers to people adapting to the technology that we're trying to spread around the world. So we thought, okay, let's get rid of the plastic. What do we have to do to get rid of the plastic? And that's where that new product came from. And it's really exciting, and lots of people are testing it out. And it's just one of our many offerings, but it's lowering the barrier to entry into IoT, and it is going to powerhouse our PLG because we don't have to pay now for SIM cards to be shipped to us, and then have our CS team ship them out to our customers, and customers get them and activate them, and put them in their devices. So it's going to speed up activation. It's going to power a PLG where people say, here, hey, I'm a customer now. And you send them their SIM keys through an email, not an email, electronically, and boom, you're up and running. So I think the advice I would say is think about what is your company's trying to do. And if this this resonates, you need executive buy-in. You have to have executive buy-in because if you are a one-person army trying to drive PLG, you're not going to get anywhere. And I think one of the things that a lot of people come against is, particularly from a marketing perspective, is this traditional idea of marketing. Yeah, cool, great. Can you just get us some more leads, please? Just put some more money in Google, do a webinar, get some new leads in. And it's that lack of the full funnel. It's that lack of, if you want to talk funnels, journeys, whatever you want to talk about it, a PLG play is how do you grow the company in a scalable and sustainable way? through all the touch points. And if that sounds like something that you would want to do, a company that is in the middle of a recession, that, that might be something you want to try out. <laughs> so I think, I hope I'm answering your question, but I think the thing I would tell them is that if you are looking to increase revenue in a increasingly difficult market, then you probably need to look at a way of making it easier for people to become customers, easier for them to use your product and love your product, easier to stay with your product and easier to expand their use case or their features with your product and upsell. That doesn't involve a ton of people driving that cack up, driving the friction up. Make it as simple as possible because that's how you're going to survive difficult times. That makes
1: a lot of sense. Before we wrap up, I want to take you to the next segment of our show, which is my favorite segment, and I'm going to have a bunch of questions for you okay. to like really understand what are some of the most helpful, impactful things that help you throughout your career and lend this amazing job you have now at The First question is. What are some of the most helpful resources you've used to deliver impact as a product person in your career?
0: I think one of the, and again, maybe a little hippie answer, but having a growth mindset. I'm sat with you on a product podcast and product is my weakest area of where I feel comfortable in my professional career. But I'm here on a podcast with thousands of listeners who are, maybe agree with me, maybe not. But I think it's this growth mindset of, I don't know what that is, so I need to learn about it. Don't be scared of it and pull away and go, that's not my job, because that's going to be the end of your growth, right? If you just say, that's not my job. And that's one of the reasons I think I gravitate towards startups is if I see something missing or something broken, it is my job to fix it. And you have to go and do it and you're going to fail. You're going to make mistakes. And I think that's the second part is trying new things and being okay with making mistakes and seeing those mistakes as learnings. I did a lot of mistakes in my career. I... I Made a lot of errors, probably more errors than successes, but I've learned from those errors and that has made my successes more impactful. And I think the third part that people tend to miss is to share those experiences. This is something actually we spoke about with Leah from Product Tea on our podcast of being vulnerable and putting your hand up and saying, I screwed up, here's what happened. We actually doubled down at this on Mondo. We host what's called Fuck Up Nights, which is a global phenomenon. Google it, it's a fuckupnights.com. But we're the Copenhagen host of it, where we get professionals from all different backgrounds to stand on stage and say, here's how I fucked up. And I think that's another big part of growing, because if people LinkedIn is the Instagram of your professional life, where everyone's, oh, I woke up and ate a kale smoothie. Only only
1: success is there, yeah.
0: Only success. And that's BS. None of us have success all the time. And so I think it's important that, yes, try new things, make mistakes share those mistakes and what you learn from them and make it so that other people who are looking at you going, she always does everything right or he totally knows everything he's talking about and they can see that you go, no, I didn't either. And you it's okay that you don't. So I think that's how I got where I am in my career of experimenting, failing, learning, sharing my learnings and trying again is a big part of what I've been doing. And I think one of the things that's helped me be very successful is I know my data, I know what I've done. I'm a meticulous note taker. I'm a meticulous presentationer giver. (laughs) But I want to be data driven in everything I do. And I can't do that unless I try new things.
1: And I like this philosophy as well. That's one of the reasons why I do this podcast is basically I'm here to learn from people like you, right? The idea is, especially in a craft like product management that's constantly evolving, like we're not doing things the way we we used to do things five years ago, 10 years ago. And especially in the technology space, things move at such an incredible pace. The idea for me is I'm at this point where I'm going to turn 37. And it's basically the time where most people are thinking, I'm going to go back to uni or I'm going to go to an MBA or something, which is probably going to cost like a ton of money, right? If you're looking for like a decent school in Europe or in the US, something like that. And instead of doing that, I'm just spending this time on this podcast, learning from amazing people like yourself. And it's like doing your own MBA and it's not costing me as much. And I get to share these conversations with a wider audience. Yeah, I totally get it. And that's why we're here. We're here to learn.
0: That's actually one of the reasons I started my, the Marketing Corner podcast was I was going on maternity leave and I thought, oh God, 14 months out of industry. So much is going to change. What do I do? What do I do? What do I do? And I had gone on, I was on a panel at a, an event called Tech Barbecue, which is a big tech event here in Copenhagen. And a fellow panelist and I just got on like a house on fire. We had such a great time. We had such great chemistry. And afterwards we're outside. Like it was almost like, I don't know, like when there's like a young boy and a young girl like each other, want to go to the dance. or standing there. Like, what are you doing later? And just like, should we do a podcast? And that event came, the podcast, and and we do much like you're doing. And I learn from people all the time. And, and it's helped me stay sharp. Through over a year of not working. And yeah, and now here I am sat with you, which is wonderful. Yeah, it's a great way to learn. And you teach, I, I think you learn by teaching as well. So that's a big part of it.
1: Brilliant. Second question What would you say have been some of the key accelerators in your career?
0: I think this kind of growth mindset of going out and trying new things and not being afraid to experiment. I've always had also, I will say, very supportive managers who would be okay with me experimenting. And that's one of the things I do now is something early in my career, my boss said, take 10% of your budget and try new things with it. And that's what I say to my team now is try new things. So I think this kind of, again, growth mindset of experiment, record your experiments, fail, learn, try again. I think also having people in my corner who believed in me, and this is not always easy to do as a woman in tech, to be completely honest. Sometimes it is hard to be heard in that room and to have men and women who say, no, we want to hear what you have to say. And having men and women both back me up when I was the new kid, and I had some ideas that maybe were a little bit wacky, but I came with data. <laughs> having those kind of mentors and those supporters throughout my career, who I'm still very close to this day, also have been a really big part of accelerating my career and giving me that confidence and that space to, to take up, which sometimes can be a little bit difficult to do. Brilliant.
1: Thank you. What advice would you give your early career self? So if you had a chat with early career Jen today, what would you tell her?
0: I would start with don't wait for permission. That's a big one. If you see something wrong, fix it. You be the change. You be the one driving that. And I think that's something that I see now with people younger in their career. And that's one of the big things I say to them is if you see something, own it and fix it. Don't sit there and say, not my job. Because those are the people I don't need on my team when times are hard. People I want on my team are the people who go, I see something wrong, and I'm going to go fix agenda where I got this. So be that person. Be the person that you would want to manage. Be the person you would want to work for. Don't worry so much about sounding right all the time. That's another big one. Again, comes back to making mistakes. It's okay to make mistakes and be easier on your knees. That would be the other thing I'd say because those went real quick. I just turned 42. But yeah, I think don't no ask for permission. And don't wait for someone to invite you to the table. Take your spot and look for the people around you who are going to help you and stay by them.
1: Brilliant. My favorite question of this show, bear with me. <laughs> imagine <laughs> imagine you're stranded on a deserted island, right? And you can have the two following things. First one, a book. Which book would you take? And second one, an endless supply of one specific dish. For all meals going forward, what would that dish be? Let's start with a book.
0: So, when I heard this, immediately my head went to the office, which is my favorite show of all time. And when they played, hold on, uh oh, is this US
1: office or UK office?
0: US office. Sorry. Oh, and thanks for having me. it has been, sorry,
1: it's been fun. We'll have to cut short. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I've like some I, part of me was hoping you were gonna say UK, but I yeah.
0: I'm sorry. I, I am a British I'm a British citizen and an American citizen. I took an oath to Queen and Country, but I could not get on board with David Brent. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. What a but legend, for me,
1: David Brent.
0: Dwight? American Dwight? Oh, Come on. Right. yeah. American okay. Dwight okay. though? Okay, okay, Or it's a crossover yeah, we need. It. Maybe that's I the get crossover. It. I, we get
1: need. It. I get it.
0: But uh, yeah, I just loved his answers, like the phys- position test reference hollowed out, waterproof matches, NASA blanket. That would be my nerdy answer. But I think my actual, I think what you're trying to get at, not the practical side of how to survive. But I really liked Born to Run by Christopher McDougall. It's all about how our bodies have evolved and how we human beings evolved to run, given the fact that we sweat through our skin and not through our mouth and all these other factors, biological factors that make us different to animals. and. It was just really cool. And it actually inspired me to start doing marathon, mountain marathons when I lived in Switzerland. So I started doing mountain marathons for charities. I need to get back into it. Not a lot of mountains here in Denmark, uh, mm-hmm. but I think you're on a, on a deserted island. It'd probably be really good to, to be able to run real fast. So I think it mm-hmm. would be that. Brilliant. What about the dish? This one's a tough one. That's
1: a, it's and the it, most difficult question.
0: For it's really hard.
1: And I love it because you have these amazing, brilliant people, guests coming onto this show, like leaders in their, in their own like career tracks and industry. And I asked them this one question and
0: they're like, can't do it. I think it depends on if you're hungry. <laughs> you asked the question, <laughs> but I lived in London for a really long time and I lived right next to an amazing Indian restaurant. And I think that's what I missed the most living here in Denmark. No offense, Sambar, but your Indian food is not great. And yeah. so I would love a really nice coconutty, creamy Lampasanda, Tandoori pasanda, with yeah. nam. That's I want that every day, but I want it to be real good. And yeah. I think I could eat that every day and die happy.
1: I can get behind that. Yeah, I can see that.
0: I just got to find it now. But yeah, you now I'm find it. We'll ship happened. that. We'll ship that. Yes, please. Your at that. How many lambs <laughs> do I have in coconuts and tandoori
1: <laughs> spices, please? <laughs> no problem at all. I've got one recommendation for you, actually. I don't know if you like Korean food at all. I'm a big Korean food fan. Okay. There's this place in Copenhagen I recently went to. It's called Juju.
0: Juju, okay.
1: J-U-J-U. I Look it up. Them. If you ever want to have a really good Korean meal, like, I would hit that place up. It's amazing.
0: Noted. Thank you very much. I've written it down. Yeah. Listen, cool. Jen, thank you so much
1: for your time today. I really enjoyed our conversation. If people want to reach out to you, can they do so on LinkedIn?
0: Absolutely. Please do. And check out our Marketing quarters podcast if you want to learn a little bit more about marketing. It's 20-minute episodes, very focused on one particular issue, and we also have fun along the way. Yeah, Check out the Marketing Corner podcast if I can do a little plug.
1: No, 100%. I will put the links to the podcast and some of the resources you shared in the show notes so people have a direct link to you. Again, thanks for taking the time to do this. Really appreciate it. And good luck with everything you're doing at Armando.
0: Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's been wonderful. It's my pleasure.
1: If you're hearing this, you've listened to this episode all the way. And for that, I thank you from the bottom of my heart. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite platform. Also, if you have a minute, please consider giving us a rating as it helps other listeners find the show. You can find all the episodes and resources on panash.io podcast. That's P-A-N-A-S-H dot I slash podcast. Until next time.